Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 40, with our book today that, uh, well, that we will be covering. We'll be talking about one of the more epic individuals in human history, uh, a person who really acted as a benchmark um, for leadership, um, particularly leadership when your back is against the wall in epic times. A gentleman whose movie you might have seen, starring Peter O'Toole in the 1960s, Lawrence of Arabia by B.H. Liddell Hart. Now, this book is quite deep and quite impactful, and as usual, we will not cover the whole book on the podcast. And my co-host uh, is coming on today, Tom, and he's going to talk a little bit about himself. Hello, Tom. Hey, Hazan. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it very much. From Lawrence of Arabia by B.H. Liddell Hart, sort of setting up what we're going to talk about a little bit today. And I quote, he returned from Carchemish again the following year with Hogarth and subsequently assisted Woolery there right up to the coming of war in 1914. The work offered plenty of variety for his province embraced the photographs, sculpture, pottery, and the copying of inscriptions. 20 years later, he remarked, quote, it was the best life I ever lived, unquote, better even than the RAF that was the refuge of his maturity. Even in the off seasons during the long winter floods and the heat of the summer, he only went home occasionally for short spells and spent the rest of the time traveling around the Middle East and Near East or staying at the diggings alone. During the digging season, he received 15 shillings a day. During the rest of the year, while traveling, he lived on his demi-ship of 100 pounds a year, supplemented by casual earnings of queerly varied kinds. Once, for example, he took on a checker's job in coaling ships at Port Said. In five years, he came to know Syria like a book, much of North Mesopotamia, Asia Minor, Egypt, and Greece. He was always going up and down. Wherever going was cheap. The solitary spells at Carchemish not only saved money, but gave him a better opportunity to make the contacts among the local Arabs and Kurds, and through close acquaintance, to reach an understanding of their ways and thoughts. Although he was not and never would be an Arabic scholar, he was always he has always been most frank in refuting this popular belief. He learned to talk it well enough for conversational purposes, and his limitations were covered up by his fluency, if also by his profound understanding of native ways. This was more than, indeed, essentially different from the acquired knowledge of the outside observer. And I quote, particularly my poverty, let me learn the masses from whom the wealthy traveler was cut off by his money and attendance. Close quote. It was an immersion in them by sympathetic projection. And by this faculty, he came to perceive what he expressed later, when it was the secret of his power. In the words, among the Arabs, there were no distinctions, traditional or natural, except the unconscious power given a famous sheik by virtue of his accomplishment. And they taught me that no man could be their leader except he ate the ranks food, wore their clothes, lived level with them, and yet appeared better in himself. It was by this complete abandonment, not only of the conventions, but of the resources of civilized life, by what other Europeans would have considered an abasement, that T.E. became a naturalized Arab instead of merely a European visitor to the Arab lands. He was helped by his indifference to the outward deference that other Europeans and especially Englishmen demand, and the way was eased by his tramp habits and outlook. 
from a quote-unquote street Arab to a quote-unquote white Arab was not a difficult transition. It was while at Carchemish that he adopted the habit of wearing native dress on occasional and specific wanderings. Short and slight, fair and clean-shaven, he was apparently the last man to carry off such a guy successfully, and his obvious incongruities have provoked scornful comment from various European experts in externals. Yet there is ample evidence that by the Arabs he was accepted, if not mistaken, for one of themselves. According to him, that was not difficult in northern Syria, quote, where the racial mixture has produced many fair natives and many with only a broken knowledge of Arabic. I can never pass as an Arab, but easily as some other native speaking Arabic, close quote. Yet here he passes over the deeper explanation, his ability to get inside an Arab's skin when donning his outer garments. It was the more easy for T.E. to do so because he already shared the Arabs' deep-rooted desire for untrammeled freedom and had no more desire than they had for the material possessions that offer comfort at the price of circumscription. In the desert, he found, like them, the stark simplicity that suited him. And although he never lost the power to adapt himself to and appreciate the more subtle pleasures of civilized society, it was in the desert that he found the solitude that satisfied his deepest instinct. But to imagine him as always brooding would be essentially false. He was no hermit. It would be nearer the truth to say he was always perceiving. And that reflection on these impressions was a process of swift mental appreciation rather than meditation. Such at least is my own impression, which may be right or wrong, for all those who meet Lawrence see a facet of his personality that largely depends on their own cast of thought and is so often different. Moreover, the same man at different meetings may see different aspects. It has led some of his friends to, Christian, to christen him the human chameleon. But this term hardly fits the figure or conveys the idea, so well as if one says that he is essentially dynamic or better still fluid in the likeness of mercury, divisible into globules yet inherently coalescent. Perhaps his own explanation is better still. Quote, at an OTC field day, I was once told to disguise myself as a battalion in close order and have done ever since. That's our opening from Lawrence of Arabia by B.H. Liddell Hart. And um, as I said before, T.E. Lawrence was the classic, well, he was the classic guy who well, was born in one country, but really in his soul was probably the native of another. He was a veteran of World War I at the time of Liddell Hart's writing, that abattoir of death that chewed up so many young men at the beginning of the last century. And there is a ton of things that we can learn from B.H. Liddell Hart's writing about T.E. Lawrence, and we're going to explore some of those today with Tom Libby. Um, so Tom, after that opening, <laughs> why don't you tell the folks a little bit about who you are and uh, why you decided to come on the podcast today? Sure. Um, so yeah, like, like you said, Tom Libby, uh, I currently serve as the chief operating officer of a, um, of a software company. Um, uh, in the past, I've had multitude of sales and marketing roles throughout my career. Um, and I, even to the point of owning, uh, I owned a, a consulting firm that did a lot of small business work uh, for sales and marketing consulting. Uh, but more importantly, you know, I, I'm just a person that tries every day to do the best I can with what I got. And sometimes, you know, 
I feel like I was shortchanged in some of the <laughs> some of the areas that uh, you know that 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 uh, that make me uh, want to go learn about things like leadership and um, you know things that are th- those those uh, attributes that are not necessarily ingrained, right? You gotta mm-hmm. you have to learn them somewhere. You, you're not really born with them, um, and even people who are considered quote unquote born leaders have a lot to learn. So um, you know, I, I think that. You know, the, and, and why I decided to do the podcast, the, your second part of the question, because um, I, I, fa- I get fascinated by this stuff. I love talking about things and I love talking through things. I, I'm a, I, have a, I have a tendency to be a little bit of a problem solver, which is probably why I got hired as a operations officer in the first place where I had no experience doing that. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was an interesting hire for the company, although I'm very happy to do it. And uh, I've been pretty excited uh, for this challenge in, in my life. But um, yeah, I, I was just excited when you asked. I thought it was a, I thought it was right up my alley of just things to learn and being able to kind of talk through things and, and have some fun with it at the same time. Well, and you're you're coming on at a time when um, we're we're covering war memoirs um, and, and historical war drama here um, on the podcast this month in November. So we've looked at um, from the old or with the old breed um, by E.B. Sledge um, about the battles of Pelennu and Okinawa. Um, and from that, we learned about the importance of training, um, basically, you know, sure. as the intensity level of the demand of performance goes up, leaders need to really be focused on training their folks. We also read um, we read the biography of William T. Sherman and the biography of Ulysses S. Grant, um, really focusing in on the Battle of Shiloh, because those are big, they, sure. particularly Grant's book, big books, right? A lot of detail in them. So we particularly focused on the Battle of Shiloh and about how you know, sometimes leaders are going to lose a lot of resources um, in order to win an overall strategic victory that tactically may look stupid at the time and tactically may create a lot of problems, but it fits in with the overall strategy. Um, it was right after the Battle of Shiloh that Lincoln was encouraged to fire Grant because um, he lost, I think, something like 15,000 men, something like that. The largest single day battle loss in, in on, on the continent of North America um and the the public was really pushing on lincoln to leave him and and to leave him in the dust and uh you know (laughs) lincoln said his infamous line i can't spare this man he fights and and that was that was grant's fundamental and sherman too their fundamental understanding was that war was cruelty and you can't refine it um and if you're going to go down that road you have to be clear-eyed you know about what is going to happen there uh, and then we we looked at, or we are looking at, um, you know, the biography of Lawrence of Lawrence of Arabia. You know, a guy who T. Lawrence, not Lawrence of Arabia, T. Lawrence. You know, a guy who is almost mythical. And so leaders, if they know anything, we'll talk about the movie today a little bit. If they know anything, they know about Peter O'Toole. Like Peter O'Toole is so associated with this guy, it's unbelievable. For sure, you know, like you you have the image of you know the blonde haired, blue eyed Peter O'Toole. And T.E. Lawrence was slight. He was small, like in that description. Um, you know, he was very much a, st- a sore thumb that stuck out. Um, but he was also a thorn in the side to the British <laughs> um, during the course of World War One. And he didn't really care too much about what was happening on the Western Front. But he cared very much about the death of the Ottoman Empire and the pulling apart of the Ottoman Empire. And that's why we're looking at his book today. Um, and I thought that with your background, particularly with your interest in um, 
in the in the, in the intersections and the struggles. Um, and I don't I don't know I don't I hope you don't mind me putting this out there, but your interest in the struggles between um, Native peoples and Americans, and just sort of you know, and it's very easy to sort of other the other. You know, we're never not going to do that today. And I don't think that Lawrence ever did that either. I never got that impression from reading this biography of him um, that he ever treated Arabs with any sense of we're going to use you. Now, other people did. And then we're actually going to talk about that at the end because we're going to kind of skip over the Arab revolt and go right to the <laughs> the Six Pacote Treaty and sort of how the Ottoman Empire was carved up at the end of World War One, which, by the way, in case you're bored by this already and you're like, this is not a why this is a war podcast. What are we doing? No, no, no. This created problems that the Americans are still cleaning up today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you need to pay attention to this. Everything that happened to America between 2001 and now is because of everything that happened at the end of World War One. It's directly a result of the Ottoman Empire getting carved up by venal, quite frankly, Western powers, most notably the French, the English. And even the Russians and the Germans were in there. Um, and so Lawrence was opposed to all of that. He wanted the Arabs to have their own autonomy, um, have their own independence, and have their own rights and be able to set their own path. And that's something that I thought, you know, might be very interesting um, for you with your background sure. and your interests coming on. So, um, all right. Well, a little bit about T.E. Lawrence. You know, we've talked a little bit about him and we read from the book, but you can go check out, and I always do kind of give a little background on the podcast. Um, these are the subject we're talking about to kind of set the tale uh, and to set the table um, of the tale. Um, but uh, just a little bit about T.E. Lawrence, uh, condensed version from the BBC History Library. Thomas Edward Lawrence was born on August 16th, 1888 in North Wales, his father, Thomas Chapman, had left his wife to live with Lawrence's mother, a governess. Lawrence studied at Oxford University and in 1909 visited Syria and Palestine. A year later, he joined an archaeological dig in Syria where he stayed from 1911 to 1914. That was what was referenced in the beginning of the book, learning Arabic. <laughs> By the way, those two words, Liddell Hart blew all that out in like two pages. <laughs> yeah, well, he learned Arabic, but he also did a whole bunch of other things. Um. He developed a deep sympathy for the Arabs who had lived under Turkish rule for centuries. In 1914, Lawrence was part of an expedition exploring northern Sinai, uh, which is now um, the western part of Egypt, um, carrying out reconnaissance under the cover of a scientific expedition. Let's talk a little bit about that. Have you ever run into a Renaissance man? Like, have you ever run into that guy? Because he he would he fits that that category. I, I don't really think so. I, or maybe I have, and I just haven't, maybe I've been naive enough to not think I have. <laughs> that's, that's, that's possible. That's completely possible. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised by the number of things that people do in their lives. So, I mean, you, you even mentioned it in your own biography. Um, you know, you've been, what we say, but CTO, COO, what else? Uh, I mean, I've been, I've actually run restaurants. I was a general manager of a, of a large restaurant, uh, went to culinary school for three and a half year, years, decided I didn't want to do that, went to sales and marketing instead. Uh, so yeah, you're, you're, I guess you're kind of right. It's, it's, it, you know, and then, you know, from a, from a cultural perspective, I, I, I've become um, kind of like the go-to person around here, uh, around our, my local area for, for Native American uh, cultures and studies and things that particular nature. So I, I find that fascinating that, that I, um, 
you know, growing up and learning about my native heritage was not a, a big thing for my family. We really didn't dive into it. Uh, it wasn't until a little bit later in life that I started diving into it. But in the short, in my opinion, the short time that I've been involved in the community, I very, very quickly became kind of like the go-to person. So people ask a lot of questions specifically about the Northeastern, uh, the Northeastern United States uh, tribal people. That's really where my knowledge is based. So uh, to your, I guess to your point, like it, I've basically been all over the map when it comes to, you know, uh, and oh, and in a, a little stint in there, I worked for an auto mechanic place, which is kind of <laughs> weird because I feel like I know nothing about cars, but yet every time a mechanic says, oh, you need to fix this or fix that, I go, all right, I get that. Like, I know, I know what he's talking about because I had that experience, but um, yeah. yeah, so it, yeah. I think you're right. I think a lot of us have that, that such a dramatic, you know, exchange of backgrounds where we, we and, and again, it, it really depends. I feel very strongly too. It depends like as you age and you kind of get, get fit into where you end up. Right. So mm -hmm. I think that, that, you know, that college age, high school, college age, and right after up until like your mid thirties, I mean, you could have 25 different jobs that have nothing to do oh, yeah. with each other. Right. Oh, like yeah. they, they're just not inter interlinked. It's rare that you find somebody now that has, uh, you know, has that one career path and they've never deviated from it. So. Well, and, and, you know, the idea of, and, and, you know, Liddell Hart talks about it with, 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 you know, talking about teach learners, this idea of being a human chameleon, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, switching and switching and switching and switching. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, in my early forties and I'm at that moment in my life, weirdly enough where, and I didn't think I would get here where I'm like, okay, now what am I going to do with the rest of like the time that's left to me? And it's not like I'm anticipating dying anytime soon. I'm going to be around. Don't worry, folks. I'm going to be around a long time. I'm inflicting myself on you for quite some time. I'm not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it's me. I put it in the frame of bets, right? And for leaders, one of the things we talk about on this podcast sometimes is the bets that you make. We talk about a little bit about poker and chess, right? Those are two games that can pull a lot. You can pull a lot from and really teach people concepts of leadership, long game, short game, mid-range game. Um, a couple of questions there as you're as you're thinking about your biography, and we're we're sort of sort of sort of start sort of starting to tie in Lawrence into a much larger conversation about leadership. Did you find it easy? to go back and forth in the, in the chameleon space to go from being an auto mechanic to being a culinary school, or was there a moment of choosing at every single one of those junctures where you could have gone either right or, or left. And like Yogi Berra says, you know, we reach, reach a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> you, you know, it's funny when you're reflective on it, you'd like to think so, right? Like you'd mm -hmm. like to think that, that there was a, a decision-making process and something happened and you went, all right, this is the right path for me. Yeah, but I, I remember a couple of those times very clearly thinking, I just need to make more money. Like right yeah. now, I'm not surviving. I, I had I had kids very very young, so by the time I was 23, I was married with two kids. Mm -hmm. I already had two children at 23. I have a 23 year old right now, my son, who I don't even think he he the thought of kids makes him laugh. He thinks like 30 is you shouldn't start having kids till you're 30. So right. So back to your to your point no yeah there were there were a couple of those scenarios where i i literally had to face the 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 firing squad so to speak <laughs> and go if i turn left and maintain the same course my family suffers because i have to work twice as hard or i have to or i have to whatever but if i take this right 
even though it's a right-hand turn completely different than what I'm doing right now, it's still, there's, there's a benefit to my family that I can't do without this right-hand turn. So mm -hmm. I would love to think that it was retro. Like, I would love to think now that I had some deep meaning behind some of these, but there really wasn't. Really, yeah. Like, you know, there really <laughs> well, wasn't. Well, and, well but, you know, pract practicality is not, I mean, let's not sniff at practicality. I mean, there is the issue of eating. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, but, but again, I guess to my, my ultimate point though, is when I look back at it today, I don't regret any of them because yeah. some of the things that I've learned throughout those processes have been invaluable, right? Like it's, yeah. it's just, you know, I, I worked for a company, I worked for a restaurant uh, where it was a, it was a bigger chain, but, and it wasn't like the, the big chains, like the McDonald's Burger. It was a localized chain where the localized chain was actually bought out because of its leadership training program that they had. Mm -hmm. so I went, mm -hmm. I went through, I was fortunate enough to go through this leadership training program. It was phenomenal. I loved it, but the entire chain was bought out by this big conglomerate just for that purpose. They didn't care what happened to the restaurants. Right. They wanted the training program and right. the company wouldn't sell it without selling the whole kit and caboodle. Right. So they, right. they basically bought this company, dismantled it, resold, mm -hmm. resold bits and pieces of it. It reminded me of the Richard Gere thing in Pretty Woman. It oh, was yeah. literally felt like I was going through that. Uh, and it was right around the same time frame too, which is really weird. That's but weird. Anyway, <laughs> but but uh, but I really did feel like it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot. Like going through the training program taught me a lot, but going through that process of them being bought and sold and cutting off the pieces and stuff also taught me a lot. That I mean, you just got to grab life by the by the horns and go with it, and and really take advantage of situations that are put in front of you. So yeah, yeah. Anyway. We are a leadership podcast. So you mentioned the leadership training program. Okay at the restaurant, uh, which shall remain nameless. We don't want to get anybody in trouble. Uh, <laughs> um, what have you learned over the course of time about leadership? Well, uh, <laughs> first of all, I, I, I find that that's a very, that's a very loaded question, right? Oh, it's loaded. And we have a hundred episodes already behind us. So go right ahead, go for it. <laughs> I think, I think the, 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 primary thing, the number one thing that I've learned is that there is no such thing as one size fits all. There is the, the, the most, the most basic or the, the most fundamental thing that I could tell anybody is the, if you have two, there's no, there's no right or wrong when it comes to style or mechanism. Like there's what might be right for me may not be right for somebody else, but mm -hmm. there's a couple of fundamental things that I learned that I think everyone should at least pay attention to. And they, they, they contradict things that we heard as children, right? Mm -hmm. So I think you and I talked about this briefly once before, not, yeah. not, on, not on film, but not on camera. But um, so one of which is when we, were, when, when we were little kids, we always heard the phrase, don't just stand there, do something, right? Yes. Something also. happens and you're, you hear, it, it's like embedded. Don't just stand there, do something. Well, this particular leadership piece was counterintuitive to that. It was... Don't just do something, stand there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the thought behind it was sometimes when you just simply react to something, it's not true leadership. You're just basically putting out a fire. You're, you're putting out a campfire when there's a forest fire behind it and mm -hmm. you're not actually seeing the whole problem, right? Mm -hmm. So don't just do something, stand there is in essence a way for you to take, take a step back, evaluate the entire thing, pros, cons, and anticipatory problems that you could see if you solve the problem one way, 
what could potentially happen if you solve the problem a different way, what could potentially happen? It gives you the ability to kind of like look at this thing in, from it uh, in its totality versus this one instance in front of you. Yeah. But it was very counterintuitive for me when I heard it. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. My, my grandmother's been telling me, don't just stand there, do something for my whole life. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You can't overthrow grandma. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, and, and, the, and the other one uh, really is uh, now escaping me because I think that one's so important. But I'll, I'll think about it later. But yeah, there was another lesson in there, but it was very similar, like, you know, a very, very counterintuitive thing where, yeah. you know, it's it's like, don't just stand there, do something or, you know, don't just do something, stand there. And again, it's like, I know it's easy to say. Actually, it's not really. If you try to say it out loud, it's really not that easy to say because your brain automatically or almost automatically reverts back to, to that. Don't just stand there, do something. Yeah. But um, yeah. but yeah, it is. It's but there, there was a couple of lessons that I learned there that. So so for me and. and what I, what I go back to a second from a second ago is there's no one size fits all when it comes to the solution part of it or how you handle those problems. But some of these commonalities of like, don't just do something, stand there should, in my opinion, be a leadership kind of mentality where you have to be able to look at things from there to, you have to be able to, and, and you're not going to solve all the problems by yourself, right? Like, right. so being able to step back and go, all right, I know this one can handle that. I know this one can handle that. I'm going to focus my attention on this mm-hmm. is, is really a, a measure of true leadership where you're only tackling the problems that need to be tackled and you're not creating problems for yourself on, in, in the process. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, I think, I think that's the, the underlying, um, you know, theme for my life anyway, from my leadership and, and, in my leadership style really is, uh, is that I know, the, the other, uh, I, I just thought, I happened to think of it. The other one, the other one that is a bit counterintuitive because you hear, uh, you, I've, I know you've heard this a thousand times, which is treat people the way that you want to be treated, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You heard it a thousand times. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Well, what if that person doesn't want to be treated the way you want to be treated? Yeah, we call so that we, the platinum rule. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so, switch of that, yeah. So we were always put on, uh, and a different way was treat people the way they want to be treated. Yeah. So, and if you don't know what that is, ask. Right. You have to be communicative with people, right? You have to be able to, and willing, and you have to be willing to listen to their words, right? So if somebody says to you, listen, I really like a direct approach. I want you to tell me when I do something wrong and help me how to fix it. Well, then that's what you do. Don't go, hey, by the way, I was wondering if you had a minute. Don't do that, right? Like, so if you're truly listening to people, if your listening skills are really well, and you can ask and be sincere about asking somebody, how would you prefer to be treated? When I, when I have a problem with you, how do you want me to address it with you? Do you prefer a sandwich method where I'm going to give you some positivity, tell you what the problem is, and then end you with some positivity, and then we'll create some corrective action with each other? Mm-hmm. Great. If that's your, if that's what you prefer, then why would I just be direct and say, "Hey, son, this you did this terribly. Fix it." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're just you're setting yourself up for failure, right? So right. There's well, you also have to believe them. This is the yes. other dynamic, which is yeah. I think people miss this part about the we we we, we in higher education. We had the same thing. You know, I spent 15 years in higher education before moving on to, you know, consulting firm and now the, you know, the business and blah, 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 and whatever I'll move on to next. Okay. So, you know, in that space, we would call that, and, and you know, this was also part of our, our um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, uh, ideas and social justice ideas, but we would call that the platinum rule, right? Um, and treat others the way they want to be treated. Okay, cool. 
but you also have to believe them. That's and that's the part we never we never really covered. You have to actually take people at their word. Like you have to believe that somehow an adult who is speaking to you somehow has some awareness over the course of time. And that might not be deep. It might not be uh, broad, right? It might be narrow and very shallow, but something exists there that needs to be honored inside of that person. Yeah. And you can say, treat people the way that they want to be treated. And then you can still screw that up by just assuming that the way they want to be treated is not really what they're saying. <laughs> and those yeah. are just going to revert back to treating them the way that you want to treat them because that's what you would want for them. It's, yeah. it's a total, you have to, in order for the math to work, I found you have to have a total faith in that that other person understands who they are. And that's yeah. really hard for people to get to. That It really is. But I will tell you one of the, one of the, I, I, I had had a role as a, a senior VP of sales and I had a, a very large sales team. And when you have a very large team, it's even harder because you can't remember all those people's <laughs> ins and outs, right? Like right. I, I had to, I had to keep notes on people because I, you know, when I met with them individually and it was, it was very difficult, but a, a microcosm of this in sales anyway, was asking people what motivates them to sell, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. so and some, and, and everybody thinks that it's money, right? Everybody thinks that salespeople go into sales and they want to keep selling because they make more money and money is the driving factor. It's almost never that. Yeah. It, it's like they love competition. They want to be the best. They want to be number one. They just sell more and more and more because they want to be on the top of the list. Some people, it's just, I, I love the satisfaction of going home and mm -hmm. telling my family that I won. Like I, I made this sale. Like I got, I made more money for it. Like it, it's, in some people, it's not even any of that. But to know all of those things, to your point, is like, and then remembering what motivates them so that you can help them be better at being themselves while they're in the sales role is, is huge, right? Because mm -hmm. it's not about them being better in your eyes. It's about them being better in their own eyes. Now, it, mm. as a senior VP of sales, of course, I had them hitting quotas and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. if they weren't hitting quota, that's different, right? Right. But, yeah. it, you know, you have no choice but to hit quota. Once you're hitting your quota, then I want you to be better for yourself, not for me. Because yeah. you're already doing 100% of what I'm asking you for, which is your quota. Anything above and beyond the quota is for you. So it's, it's not even about me at that point. And a lot of sales leaders forget yeah. that. Yeah. No, that no, that that makes perfect sense. And as you were talking, I was thinking about how T.E. Lawrence operated inside of the British bureaucracy yeah. <laughs> around World War One. Like he would have loved to have been led by a guy like you, but he didn't have that guy. <laughs> he had he had the bureaucratic obstinacy. And so what he did was he tried to get as the hell away from it as far as he possibly could, because back then geography really meant something, right? Yeah, right, right. You know, the gap between London and Aleppo in Syria, like who's going to come find you in Aleppo? Who's right. really going to be paying whole, attention? That's that whole really, out of sight, out of mind thing, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> who's really good? Kitchener, the, the prime minister at the time, I think the prime minister, the war minister at the time, Kitchener, He's not going to be calling you every single day, <laughs> checking in on you, right? Exactly. He's not going to be checking on you about your quota. You're going to be like, well, I'm out here in the field. And, uh, you know, I'm bopping around, I'm eating Whataburger, I'm hanging out and talking to the locals. Uh, would you like to see how close you would? Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have no clue what it's like out here. I tell you what, why don't you stay over there in London and I'll do what I need to do over here. And it was, you get that sense about Lawrence that 
he would have been really good at sales. I mean, he convinced an entire bunch of people to go on to it. I mean, they were already wired in that direction anyway to kind of revolt against the Turks. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about the Arabs and the Ottoman Empire and sort of how they had friction anyway that Lawrence was able to uh, able to capitalize on. But you do get that sense that if he had been in a sales role, he would have been the guy out in the field who you like don't hear from once every six months. He comes in, he drops off his quota. He's yeah. gone above it and he just, yeah. just disappears back out into the night. <laughs> Well, and vice versa. I would have loved a guy like that too, right? Because my philosophy, and I, I tell every sales rep that ever worked for me, is very simple. If you hit your quota, I don't care what you're doing. I don't right. care how many hours you work. I don't care if you work two hours a day or 12 hours a day. It doesn't matter. All I care about is that number. You hit that number, do whatever you want to do. I used to have guys literally would take Fridays off. Yeah. And they were like, and they would test me on it. They were like, yeah. well, I'm not coming in on Friday because I hit my quota. I'm like, all right. And they're like, right. really? I was like, hey, I told you. If you hit your quota, I don't care what you do. Well, it's so, also the trust issue, which which is so fundamental to leadership. So leaders have to trust their people. Yeah. But that comes with some dynamics there about, as Ronald Reagan would have said back in the day, verification, right? Yeah. Trust, yeah. but verify, right? Um, and I think because of that whole out of sight, out of mind thing, which used to be geographic and now is a lot less so non-existent almost non-existent <laughs> like, you know in the hundred in the well over 100 years now 100 what is it, 104 years since the end of world war one we've gone from hey i could be over there in aleppo to i can get called in like three seconds on a text message right yeah. um or, or you know you can buzz me all the time you can basically be bothering me all the time i think as the level of independence between people has shrunk so has that level of trust because sure. we can get people whenever we want them, right? Like commanders in Iraq from the, probably the, what, you know, the, oh, not even a colonel. Yeah. Well, yeah. From the colonel level going all the way up, um, they were able to be contacted on sat phone all the time, just all the time, 24 hour, 24 hour check-in. And so that ability to make decisions on the ground in a dynamic environment, just like in a sales environment, just gone, just yeah. You know, so, so there's for all the people who like bureaucracy and like to fiddle, <laughs> the fiddlers, this is, this is now the fiddlers' time. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. The fiddlers, like the fiddlers and the meddlers, uh, like to fiddle and meddle. And again, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be some bureaucracy, there shouldn't be systems in place. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be, should not be rules, but we got to have trust at some point in order to, uh, in order to make things work. I had, I had a conversation with my dad. My dad spent 23 years in the air force. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, I had a conversation with him one time about uh, an order he was given that he did not, that he did not um, fulfill. Right. Yeah. And he got in some, some serious trouble for it initially, but once yeah. it got, once it got to a certain level, they kind of backed off. And I asked him what made him make that decision. He said, there's a difference between doing what you're told and doing what's right. There you go. And if you, if your heart go, if your heart uh, weans on the side of doing what's right, mm -hmm. even if you get a slap on the wrist for it, I'd rather get a slap on the wrist than cause people's lives. And there I'm you like, go. All right. I, I, I can't argue with that. Right. Like, yeah, right. Exactly. So, yeah. And the people that served under him would witness that stuff. Like they would witness him going against a direct order or things like that because it was for what was better for whatever he was talking whether it was mm -hmm. better for his men or better for his people i should say i apologize not because it wasn't just men it was men and women mm -hmm. so it was what something that was better for his, the people serving underneath him 
better for the country, better for the allies, whatever that betterment was, if he he you know he was he was always on the side of what was right versus what was being you know pushed and and pulled on it. And he served in some pretty uh, some pretty sketchy areas too. So I I, I won't say you know what he did. We're not gonna put your father on blast. Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) I just remember I remember one time. I remember one time there was like a he had to go. Like he's like I we gotta go. He left in the middle of the night. We didn't know where he was for six months. We had no oh, idea, no clue, wow. no no word from him, no nothing. We had no idea where he was for six months because it was top secret or whatever. Yeah, man, just man, just stepped out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so it was like, you know, it was just. Uh, so he had some. He he made some pretty tough decisions a lot in his military career, but not all of them were what his higher, uh, uh, his his bureau his bureaucrats wanted. So yeah, his superiors, yeah. Well, speaking of superiors, let's talk a little bit about a little bit about those superiors. <laughs> back to Lawrence of Arabia, back to the biography of T. E. Lawrence by B. H. Liddell Hart. By the way, um, just want to drop a note here: we're not going to cover the whole book. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to cover a little bit about Colonel Lawrence. We're going to talk a little bit about the setup um, and the geopolitics um, around the era of revolt. We are going to skip over the Arab Revolt in and of itself because that's just too big for us to cover here on this podcast. If you want to read about the Arab Revolt, go pick up the copy of Lawrence of Arabia. Liddell Hart breaks it down beautifully. He was a beautiful, he was a great grand historian of war and warfare um, and of leadership, quite frankly. He was fascinated by that as well. Um, also a veteran of the abattoir known as World War One, uh, a person who huh, who people in his own homeland proving the old school statement that a prophet in his own country is not listened to or is not welcomed anyway. Um, Liddell Hart was not welcomed by his own people in Britain, um, but the Germans really liked what he had to say about what happened at the end of World War I, and they read all of his books. And then in a post-Cold War um, post, not post Cold War, but in a Cold War, post World War II environment, Liddell Hart fell out of favor yet again um, for really talking honestly about the Cold War, talking about the battle between the East and West and where nuclear warfare could possibly end up. Uh, the man died in the 1970s and he had a brilliant writing career. He wrote tons of volumes and you can go search him out if you would like. Back to Lawrence of Arabia. During the years immediately before the war, Kitchener in Cairo, (laughs) so uh, he left London and came to Cairo with his oriental habit of keeping his ear close to the ground. By the way, just want to pause for a minute. This book was written in, here Here we go. Uh, So this book was written in 1935, okay, and it was published by DeCapo Press. and it was written uh, right after, or was published right after T.E. Lawrence died in 1935 um, upon his death. And so sold quite a number of copies. But uh, what I want to say is they're going to have old school language in here. So they are going to refer to people from the East as Orientals. Uh, this is not a socially just book by modern standards. However, it is a truthful one. And so that is one of the reasons why we are talking about it today. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> During the years immediately before the war, Kitchener in Cairo, with his oriental habit of keeping his ear close to the ground, was well aware of the subterranean stirrings among the Arab subjects of the Turkish Empire. 
As he spun his spider's web of information for Britain's imperial interests, many significant clues and secret currents came to his knowledge. Among them were the ambitious dreams of Hussein, Sharif of Mecca, and his sons, of a vast Arab confederacy under the uh, suzerainty of their family. A vision of the past glory of the Abbasid Empire floated before their eyes. In February 1914, the Young Turks appointed Vahib Bey, who was known for his violently anti-Arab sentiments as Vali or governor of the Hejaz. After his arrival in Mecca, he ordered the sheriff, the Sharif, to hand over a hundred old Mauser rifles with which his guard was armed. This insult provoked a riot. The same month, the Emir Abdullah, the Sharif's second son, came to visit Kitchener in Cairo and told him privately of the Sharif's ambition to achieve independence for the Hejaz. He found a sympathetic listener who had long, who had himself long cherished the idea of founding an independent Arab state in Arab Arabia and Syria. Now you have to understand something. Pause. You have to understand something at the time. The Ottoman Empire was the largest land-based empire um, among the Western powers um, pre-World War One. Uh, it covered a space, a geographic space that went from Persia or Iran, okay, in the West, all the way to um, bumping up against Egypt, right, and even some parts of Egypt and over to Morocco and Tunisia in Northern Africa. Big empire, multiple people, lots of different um, ethnicities, lots of different groups. The main religion uh, of the Ottoman Empire was Islam. And so Islam is split into two factions. And that is part of the tension that the British were seeking to leverage against. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Back to the book. Then the war came, World War I, and Kitchener left Cairo for London to supervise schemes of a vaster scope and more immediate execution. But amid the careers of, but amid the cares of creating a new army of millions, he did not forget the possibility of converting the Arabs into a British asset. Moreover, a reminder came to him from the depths of Arabia in the form of a cryptic message sent by a circuitous, circuitous route. Following for Lord Kitchener, remember our conversation. The day has come. The ominous bearing of Turkey gave emphasis to the matter. If the Turks were to proclaim a jihad, the attitude of the Sharif of Mecca would have an important influence on its scope and its success. Thus, towards the end of September, this is in 1914, Kitchener sent a message to the Emir Abdullah to inquire whether the Sharif would be on the side of Britain or against her if Turkey joined in the war. The reply was friendly but guarded. The Sharif's ambition was tempered by his caution, and he was typically Arab, some might say traditionally British, in his care to sit on the fence, with a foot still on either side until the right moment had arrived and the outlook had cleared. He implied that he would not side with the Turks of his own choice, but evidently wanted an assurance from the British side before he took the risk of defying his overlord in Constantinople. He did not forget that it was the policy of the Turks to keep alternative Sharifs in stock there. He himself and his sons had been held for years as hostages by Abdul Hamid until the revolution of the Young Turks had caused a convenient revolution in his fortunes and put him in Mecca in the place of his cousin. But there were several factors to check the British from obeying themselves hastily. Any definite assurance might precipitate the very conflict with Turkey that Britain, on moral even more than on material grounds, was striving so hard to avoid. The religious problem was a complex one, and Britain, with millions of Muslim subjects, had to consider the issues carefully before supporting a challenge to the Sultan of Turkey, who, as holder of the caliphate, was their spiritual head. Hussein is the sheriff, Sharif of Mecca, and descendant of the Prophet counted for much, but it was doubtful whether he had the temporal weight to lay claim to the caliphate. 
When Turkey entered the war against Britain, these considerations lost much of their force. The Sharif might not have had adequate weight for the caliphate, but he had enough to be a counterpoise to the jihad. At Kitchener's instigation, a fresh message was sent through Abdullah. It gave the Sharif a definite, a definite assurance that if he and the Arabs actively aided Britain in the war, she would recognize and support their independence in return. Another cautious reply came back to Cairo. It was more definite on the subject of neutrality, but intimated that the Sharif's position in Islam made it impossible for him to break with Turkey immediately. His hesitation this time was largely explained by the fact that he was still sounding other Arab leaders. His third son, Faisal, had gone to Syria to gauge the value of the Arab secret society there, which had just appealed to him for support in a proposed mutiny. But in essentials, the Sharif had already rendered Britain a service greater than any that could be expected in the material realm, for he had refused, much to the Turks' indignation, to proclaim the jihad from the holy cities, and thus had largely drawn its sting. Britain had a war with Turkey on her hands, but to all intents, she was saved the back-breaking burden of a holy war. There's a lot there. <laughs> Yeah. There's a lot there. <laughs> and me reading it out loud, like I read it quiet, I read it quietly like three or four times. Reading it out loud, there's a lot there. <laughs> um <clears throat> let's talk a little about religion. <laughs> the holy war and the Arab revolt. Let's talk a little about religion. Um, religion is always the third rail. And one of the things we talk about sometimes on this this podcast is the, and I frame it this way, the theology of leadership. And it is this idea that. In a, in a hierarchy of dominance, which what all humans build hierarchies of dominance everywhere throughout all time. Sure. There's always something spiritual, something bigger than the material at the top of that hierarchy. Um, if you're a secularist, the thing that's at the top of the hierarchy might be the climate and Mother Earth. Okay. It's bigger than you, right? If you are a person who is atheistic in your leanings, if you might not admit it, but you might place yourself at the top of that hierarchy. <laughs> it's probably a little bit of a problem for you, but we'll leave that aside for just a moment. You might place yourself at the top of that hierarchy. Um, if you are any variation of any of the big three religions, Judaism, Islam, or Christianity, or any of the smaller religions, you're going to place a transcendental or a transcendent entity at the top of that hierarchy. Human beings seem to be wired to do this. We we cannot get away from it. We cannot escape it. It's kind of one of those baseline things, kind of like war um, or building families <laughs> or building, uh, building communities, right? Something's going to be at the top of that dominance hierarchy. We don't talk a lot about Islam on this podcast because I don't know anything about it and I don't know enough to be able to make any comments on it. However, I do know a little bit about geopolitics and the nature of religion and its impact on geopolitics cannot be underestimated, as we have seen in the last 20 years of our own century. What can leaders learn from dealing with that? That Number one, dealing with a dominance hierarchy, that's number one. But then number two, when it comes to playing politics, like Kitchener is doing in this example, with two competing sides and balancing the ends against the middle. And it's all these weighty kind of decisions. How do leaders navigate those weighty kinds of decisions in a political space? Oh yeah. I opened the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, <clears throat> I don't know. You know, it, it's, it's weird that you say that because like, 
you know, as, as much as you've always heard this a hundred times, again, a hundred times you hear this, like there are certain topics you avoid, right? Talking oh, yeah, about sure. when you're at work, you don't talk oh, about sure. sex, religion, or money. Money, money, yeah, money is usually money, the third one. Yeah, money, money, sex, and religion. You just don't talk about those things at work, right? But but you, you hear it, you hear people say it, and you still hear people talking about it. Like nobody ever listens to that part of it, right? <laughs> so um, I, I, I'm kind of with you, Hassan. I don't know enough about Islam to really speak intelligently on it. Um, but what I can say is, you know, being I, I can at least I can at least compare and contrast two different, very distinctly different. Uh, religions when it comes from that perspective, because I was raised Catholic, right? As a, as a young kid, uh, like I said earlier on this uh, podcast, um, you know, my, my family, when I was young, didn't really drive home the native part of our, our heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up Catholic, grew up going to, a, you know, Catholic schools, uh, the whole nine yards. Uh, and, and, and then now my current faith, which is, a bit more spiritualized than than following a a, a Bible or a Quran sure. or anything like that, right? It's, yeah. it's a little bit more kind of fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I will say that from my experience, and again, I'm not I'm not gonna weigh religions against each other in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. But I will tell you that if you talk to people, that the foundation of those religions are all very similar. Like yes. if you look across the world, even even whether you're talking about major religions, minor religions, it doesn't matter. The the fundamentals, the, the if you drill them down to their core basics, they're all relatively the same. Mm-hmm. It's usually when you get down to either very specific sects or or uh, you know or, or extremists where you really start seeing some major differences that can that can cause problems, right? So well, it's, to, to it's your also, point about. It's also very specific truth claims, right? Because right. that's yes, where you yes, get yes. the parting too. Like it's where those specific, like, you know, I, I follow Christianity. Uh, you know, the, what Christians at the fundamental bottom say about Jesus is a radically fundamental truth claim. Yeah. That that like, and, 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 and by the way, even St. Paul said this, it's a stumbling block for the Jews and for the Greeks, they don't understand. <laughs> like some, some people are going to like, not be like, going to be like, I'm out. Right. Yeah, and that's yeah. always been the thing with Christianity for like the last 2000 years. Islam, the same thing. There's a fundamental truth claim at the bottom of Islam, where if you're going to follow that thing, you're going to go along with that truth claim. And right. that's it. Like you're not, you're not letting anything out. Same thing in Judaism. There's a fundamental truth claim inside of Judaism about the nature of Yahweh. It just, you can't get around that. It becomes a stumbling block at a certain point. So anyway, so, sorry. So I ahead. think, so I think if you spin that back to what we were yeah. talking about earlier, right, yeah. which is treat people the way they want to be treated. Right. And you know, and, and, um, in understanding what motivates people. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing, right? So whether you're talking about, you know, these geopolitics and finding, really finding out what that drives that person or what drives that, that country or whatever, there's got to be some motivational factor in there. And if you truly understand that you have an easier time leading the horse to water, so to speak. Right. Versus, don't you also, don't you versus also trying to... to push your agenda on their fundamental thought yeah. process. It yeah. doesn't work that way, right? So, Well, and again, it comes back to this idea. I said you have to believe them, right? Yes, exactly. Right. Like you actually exactly. have to take them at their word. Right. And it doesn't have to be your belief. It's right. you no, have no, to no. believe. You have to believe that that's what they believe. Like that's right. So in, in order to face that, that front, 
you you can't be thinking, well, they don't really think that. It's got to be some way around there. It's got to be some version of this or that. Like you you can't do that. You yeah. you have to take them at face value and take them at their word that that is their fundamental. Well, and don't people have have you found in your experience that when you don't believe that and you try to go around it, you try to negotiate around it, you try to make an offer to them, then in essence you're insulting them. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Like they'll take your money for sure. Like. This is this is what has happened in big power politics for the last hundred years. You don't believe me in what I'm saying. Okay, that's fine. America or England or Britain or France or Russia or China. Like Russia's running into this right now with the Ukraine. Say what you want about the Ukrainian war. Uh <laughs> Russia and the Ukraine are negotiating over very different things. Yes. They're not negotiating over the same thing, right? And von Clausewitz, the infamous German, said that war is just or poli- war is just politics with other means. <laughs> kind of kind of reverse that a little bit when we get down to when we get down to the, the back end of Lawrence's career a little bit, where politics becomes war by other means. But um, but when you don't take people seriously, when you don't actually believe them, then you are. You're you're treating them as if they are children and you're you're kind of insulting them. And 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 that's it's sort of how great powers have dealt with smaller entities, smaller nation states without resources or without power. Um, gosh, for like since time out of mind. And it always bites them in the butt. It, it, in making some assumptions, right? I think I think people do that a, a lot. And I'll give you one example. I just happened to I happen to be reading on social media. Um, it, it, it's through my own connections on social media and this this poor woman got vilified for this, but, and I just didn't understand where people were coming from. So we're in native, we're in the, in the native community, but she happens to be Christian, right? So she okay. follows the Bible and Christian and people were vilifying for her, her for this. And I'm thinking to myself, being native is, is no different than someone being English or Japanese or mm-hmm. like, it's who you are. It's like where you're from. It's not that is not your religious practice. If she chooses to be Christian, then who are we to say she's wrong? I don't understand right. why she was getting vilified for this because her faith was put in a different direction than what everybody else on that on that uh, thread mm-hmm. thought she should be. And she sure. completely felt attacked, berated, all the words that you can think of. Mm-hmm. And and I'm sitting here thinking to myself. Like people, time out, slow down here. Yeah. Do you understand why she is that? Like, did you even ask why she's Catholic or Christian? She yeah. says Christian. I'm sorry. She doesn't say Catholic. I apologize. Sure, sure. And I know, and I know there's a distinction. So she's Christian. Mm-hmm. And I go, nobody stopped to ask her what, like, why this is important to her. What the thing does, is there, is there a way that these two worlds can live inside of her together or the, like, because there's some purists that say absolutely not. Like you are either following the native path of spirituality and and, and faith, and or or you're not. And I'm I have a slight problem with that because we're very complex beings. Like we're we're very complex. We're not like we're not that simple. So uh, anyway, well, but well, 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 in my my if I am a complex human being and you're going to admire my complexity in all these other areas but you're not going to admire my complexity in this you're going to critique me and my complexity in this one other slot hey, number one i'm insulted that's number one number two who the hell are you right, <laughs> right, right. who the hell put you at the top of my dominance hierarchy you're not at the top of that you can 
thank you for your feedback. Now walk away. (laughs) You're you're, you're finished, right? right? But then also there's a dynamic there where, and I think we're seeing this sharply now as you said, you know, the, the big three were, were, were politics, religion, and, and, and sexual behavior, right? Well, sexual behavior, eh, okay, we're, we're, we're off to the races on that. We've been off to the races on that for like 70 years. We're off to the <laughs> yeah. races on that. Uh, we're the horses in the field and just running around, like forget that. That's out the window. Um, money, interestingly enough, pay transparency is now becoming a huge thing. And we kind of go through these cycles about this, but I really think that with this younger generation, pay transparency is actually going to stick this time around. I, um, I hope so too. I Well, I think that's going to create a whole lot of problems because you're fundamentally going to have two people who are sitting next to each other who are doing the exact same thing, but getting paid differently. And that's going to cause, I think, some some friction, not necessarily between those two people, although that may be where it might begin, but it's going to cause friction between the people and the organizational structure that made those decisions. And then the structure will get questioned. And we already have questioning of institutions going on right now at a blistering pace. I don't know that we need more, more gasoline on that fire. Well, that, I, I I think you're right. But I think that there there's if you do it right, it's still mm-hmm. going to be okay. So you have two people sitting next to each other. They're doing the exact same job. One's been there six months. One's been there 13 years. And they make yeah. different money. You can justify that, right? Yeah. Like. So right. somebody who's the, been the there, fact that you, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was say some somebody been there six months and somebody's been there six months and they're making different money. That's a problem, and that's a problem that should be addressed. That's not, you know what I mean? Like that's it's, that that's the problem that that especially God for God. I mean, I can only imagine if those are either two different sexes, two different races, like whatever. That's that needs to be addressed. Like I'm sorry, but that's like. <laughs> Well, that's a good it, problem. That that's a good problem to cause with that. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, and you all. Well, you also said something there, interestingly, which are two caveats in there. If it's done right, and then and then, um, you know, you can fix that. Um, I'm not quite sure that that systems institutions are prepared to fix that. And most systems institutions are people, and people don't want to go into what all their prejudices are. They really don't. This yeah, is why true. most DE and I training tends to fall flat on its face because people actually don't want to talk about their identities. They don't, they want to walk around with them. They want to behave out of them. They want to, they want to act out of them. They want to think out. They want to, they want to think out of them when it's convenient for them to think out of them. But other than that, leave me alone. And that's fundamentally, by the way, American. I don't necessarily think that that translates to other places in in the world <laughs> because of the nature of our national identity. So you've got, you've got money, you've got sex, politics, used to be the third rail. Um, but weirdly what happened, and I trace it back to the whole hanging Chad issue in the 2000 election between George Bush and um, and Al Gore. Um, I think that was a turning point linchpin moment in American history that I think we've underestimated. Because at that point, you lit the you lit the the spark on the, or you lit the the fuse on the dynamite that would blow up later on down the road, sixteen years later, with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, where everything, everything, not everything, the polarization of culture, and we were just talking about religion, the polarization of culture and the polarization of politics has led to a religious fervor. I, I fundamentally believe, and that religious fervor 
I'll frame it this way. We we used to outsource all those feelings to religion and we would go into and we go and worship and flagellate ourselves. I mean, in the 18, in the what was it, the 14th century, people would walk around and hitting themselves. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the Catholics would speak of Catholicism. The Catholics would run around hit themselves in Italy, right? Uh, and there are still some places where that does happen. Um, some parts of the Philippines, other places. Anyway, flagellates is what they're called. But all of that, right, is now sourced in. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And it's all that feeling and emotion. By the way, I'm not sure that's a good thing. Matter of fact, I'm actually sure that's a really bad thing. But I also think at work, it's now opened the door to, I can't talk to that person because they voted for who I, or or X, Y, Z, or, you know, I can't go out on a sales call with this person because I saw this ABC thing posted on their social media platform because we're all friends, which we shouldn't be, by the way. I think that that's something else that should go away at work. You shouldn't all be friends at work with the people that you work with sometimes. Um, but like, or I saw this person's random tweet, you know, or even, and, and you even see it in organizations, we're not going to hire this person because their Twitter feed's a nightmare. Yeah, right, right. You know, and we don't want to deal with that, right? Um, and that gets into a lot of social signaling and all these other kind of knock-on effects that you see happening. That religious impulse, this is, a, this is a fundamental question for leaders. How do leaders lead through that? We've been kind of exploring and mashing around this on the podcast, and it does kind of get into this because it does feel like a geopolitical kind of thing. It feels like you're moving tectonic plates here. It's like you're Kitchener or Lawrence trying to figure out how to pit the Arabs against the Turks to get an outcome that you want without looking like you're pitting the Arabs against the Turks, you know? Um, how do leaders lead through that if they're also trying to be transparent? I, I don't know. <laughs> that's, a, that's another well, you, one. You wanted to come on. You wanted to come on the podcast. Yeah, I warned yeah, you. Yeah, I know. I, oh, this would be fun, I said. I convinced myself this would be fun. What can he possibly ask me? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, I, I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta pause with this one, right? Because like, I've always, I've always had, uh, I've always had like a, a self philosophy of you're entitled to your opinion and your beliefs as long as you do not try to force them on me. We can still be friends, right? Like I, I've had that for a, for a long time. So even the jobs and the roles that I've had and and work and and you know and I, I've been in leadership, you know I, I think I I I didn't tell you timelines, but I was the very first management role I had, I was 18 years old. I was, so I've been in leadership roles almost my entire life. So it's inevitable that you come up with circumstances that, that you, that are hard to talk about. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I think, I think the way that, that I've been able to kind of go unscathed with this, I'll say, right. So meaning, meaning like I was never disciplined on how I handled any situation ever in my life. Right. Mm -hmm. Because because I, I I always approach everything with with a few mental caveats in the back of my brain. Ultimate respect, no no matter like you have to be respectful of somebody regardless of what they're complaining about or what the problem is that they're telling you about or what whether you find validity in their complaint or not is irrelevant when you treating with, with when you when you ha- treat them with respect right because mm-hmm. you can again let's say somebody comes to me and says hey so and so was making fun of my religion i want them written up whatever right like i i'm just making something up here sure yeah but 
or so-and-so and so-and-so were talking about religion and they got into a huge fight. And now they don't want to work with each other. Mm-hmm. That that's probably more likely. Right. Yeah. So, so now I'm going to so-and-so and so-and-so and trying to figure out what happened. The most important thing I can think of in this, in this scenario is a treat them both with the, with the level of respect that they're, that, that, that they deserve, that they should, that they should be requiring of, of themselves. Try as best I can to remain 100% and utterly and completely impartial so that I don't take sides on any one of those, those scenarios that are being thought, uh, thought about, and then try to find a middle ground when it comes to uh, some sort of compromise when it comes to you don't have to like each other, but you have to learn how to function with each other mm-hmm. and make and getting them to understand that. I But I think that's the best you can do. Right. Because yeah. to, to your point a few minutes ago, we've been the, the last the last 10 years, especially the last five to 10 years have been so polarizing with everything. Hey, son, not even just yeah. religion. I mean, oh, yeah, it's like. It, it's like your your eight eight color Crayola box. That's red. No, that's not red. That's uh, you know that's maroon. I, I don't know. Or that that's not gray. It's taupe or I, whatever. But people will argue about just about anything at this point. You can cancel <laughs> right. somebody over them appropriating recipes from other cultures. Yes, exactly right. So it's like it's it just so we we've we've basically become a a. a a series of polarizations. Yeah. And yeah. and as as leaders the best the best you can do is try to stay impartial in 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 dealing with those things regardless of whatever your own opinion is. You have to be able to take your opinion out of it. It's not yeah. about your opinion. It's about yeah. it's about impartiality and fact. That that's yeah. it. Now, if somebody laid a hand on somebody, that's fact, right? right. So we were we got into this argument about religion and they they pushed me aside so they can walk out the door. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fact. They pushed you. They shouldn't be putting their hands on you. That's fact. I don't care what you were arguing about. That's fact. Right. Right. Like, right. So like, they, I don't know. Like I said, it's, it's, this is, this is a really tough one because I, I think that, and, and I also think that each individual scenario needs to be addressed on its own merit. So you could yeah. have, you could have two people arguing about, about religion over here and two people arguing about religion over there and they're completely different two di- two different scenarios like you, you have to be able to look at these things as they as they are face value individually without opinion without judgment be as impartial as you can and ultimately be as respectful as you can to everybody involved yeah. I, I, that's the only way that i could that i could uh, you know address this yeah yeah well and you know what look <laughs> Again, it's that outsourcing, right? It, it, so, you know, you use you use the example of religion in your example where somebody pushes somebody else or somebody's having a discussion or a, a very vibrant uh, argument. And Tom, these days is going to be politics. It is. It's going to be who voted for who, right? Yeah, right. You know, exactly. uh, you know it's going to be, I don't like the fact that you've got XYZ's bumper sticker on the back of your car, so I'm going to vandalize your tires. It, 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 those kinds of things have happened right. and continue to happen between people. Um I'm going to kick your butt because I saw some Facebook posts about you support. We, we literally have these things happening right now. Not literally, I shouldn't say literally. We have these things happening right now. And it is that it is that religious impulse, um, that impulse to put something at the top of the hierarchy. And we've put, I mean, to use biblical language, we put Caesar at the top of the hierarchy. And the, the challenge here is, and, and, and every good leader knows this, and I think more good leaders need to say this out loud. 
Um, the people that you put at the top of the hierarchy have feet of clay. They're people. Yeah, right. They're just human beings. Yeah. They don't have a pants jumping in machine in their house. Like they put their pants on one leg at a time <laughs> the same way you do. Like they really do. And if they do have a pants jumping in machine, you should probably get a patent to that. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. We could sell that. <laughs> <laughs> we could make some cash from this podcast. <laughs> yeah. But uh but you know, it's funny that you say that too, because I I, you know, and, and I might be controversial even saying this, but I think that's one of the things that we're truly lacking right now is mm-hmm. true leadership yeah. I, I i as as a as a as a country as as uh you know some of the the bigger companies yes you have a figurehead at the top of that 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 you call the leader because that's what their title says they are whether yeah. it's president or ceo or whatever right it's like they, they've, they're, they're there because their title puts them there but are they really leaders do we have real true leadership in that geopolitical atmosphere. I I have a hard time believing it, honestly. I really do. And I'm not talking, you can vilify me if you want. Like, I'm not talking Democrats are better than Republicans or Republicans are better than Democrats. I think they both suck. I think that I think the leadership qualities on both sides of the coin are terrible. <laughs> well, I think I think we have something. Remember, I said history doesn't repeat, but it reverberates. I think we have yeah. something from from Lawrence as we're turning the corner here in the yeah, last yeah, few yeah. minutes that we've got. I think we have something from Lawrence here that may that may help us. So, you know, he went off, he did the revolt. Um, he led the revolt. Um, again, you can read this in the book. Go read the history of the Arab revolt. Um, the things that he did at a hybrid warfare level and at an asymmetrical warfare level were just genius at the time because no one else was doing them. As a matter of fact, the U.S. Army War College has looked at um, how – um, T.E. Lawrence led the Arab Revolt in a lot of what they used as strategy um, in the um, the second round of the um, of the Iraq War, uh, trying to replicate some of those some of those ideas about hybrid warfare, asymmetrical warfare, what to do when 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 terrorism occurs, you know, um, how to respond to IEDs. It, Lawrence did this all first. He's kind of like Nietzsche, you know, the bad boy of philosophy who did everything first. Yeah. Uh, Lawrence was the bad boy of hybrid warfare. He did everything first. Um, and he did it with people, by the way, who respected him. So that's fundamentally what we were talking about here. The Arabs actually respected him and he had earned that respect by going and caring about those people, learning their language, eating their food, dressing in the way that they dressed. Um living in the desert the way they lived in the desert, understanding the meaning of their culture. He actually went in to the culture and tried to actually learn it. And then the war was over, World War One, And then the politics started. <laughs> the politicians. Back to the book, as we round the corner here, from Lawrence of Arabia by B.H. Liddell Hart. The war was won, the Turkish Empire overthrown, an Arab state inaugurated, and the possibility of an Arab confederacy, even a new empire, created. All this had been achieved by the sword, or to be more accurate, by the long-range bullet and blasting gelatin. Lawrence's military task was complete. The political task remained, although for his own part, he had no desire to participate beyond securing fair play for the Arabs, the freedom to do what they wished with the gift he had done so much to bring them. The wheels of the machine splatter its servants with grease. That's a heck of a, that's a, heck of a line. Those who serve an organization, whether it be a nation or a firm, can hardly hope to escape staining their honesty, bound to it as they are by ambition or self-preservation dang okay thank you liddell hart like the overwhelming majority lawrence had become stained in the course of his servitude but he was different 
in being more conscious of the stain. He was too clear-sighted for his own comfort, and he suffered accordingly. Happy in his freedom from ambition, as commonly conceived, happier still in his freedom from the cares of livelihood and from the ties that bind others to this concern, his mind was so uncommonly lucent that the stain had an iridescent persistency which he could never escape. I have never known a man more sensitive to the truth from which mankind instinctively seeks protection in shaded glasses. Thus, for him, the fight with the Arabs' battle was a forlorn hope, spiritually even more than politically. To wipe out the stain was impossible because it lay in his own consciousness. But he could at least pursue the atonement that was within possibility, not for his sake, but for theirs. To this endeavor, be now he now gave himself, despite his own sense of ultimate futility of all such endeavor. He uh, he did not believe, close quote, he did not believe in the political solution. He he knew that politics had to come in and he understood that there were going to be people who were going to come in and were going to politically cut up what he had done. But he didn't need to be a part of it. Yeah. He didn't need to be at the table. Now, he did go to the table, however, because he thought, well, maybe I'll be able to do something there. But he wound up playing a game against people who were better at it than he was. Diplomats and wartime generals who had just come out of the mess of the war and wanted their piece of the pie. And just to make a point here, he said, it is written in the book, and I quote, Lawrence's departure from Damascus as soon as the military victory was secured gave him the chance to fight his battle for England's honor and his own in the only place where it could be won. But he had not expected that it would come so soon because he had not anticipated that Germany's collapse would follow so quickly on Turkey's. The immediate reason for his timely transition from east to west is best given in his own words, most characteristic. And I quote, I love this. I had finished. What better reason? The Arab revolt and the Turkish war were also finished. What was in my mind as I went towards London was to begin again as a junior officer in France, learning the new way of war. The east was sucked dry never outstay a climax. No comment. <laughs> how do we stay on the path? That's usually how we end. How do we stay on the path if we are reading Lawrence of Arabia, if we're thinking about these these topical areas, how do we stay on the path as a leader? How do we make sure we know when to go? What can we take from T.E. Lawrence? Um, that, that's a good one, too, because, I, again, I, I really do think that some people uh, stay in those roles way too long, right? Like, that you know, they don't understand or know when they... they uh, the circumstances have surpassed them, right? Mm -hmm. That they don't know and understand enough about the landscape in order to make, you know, honest assessments or to make, uh, you know, honest recommendations, right? Mm -hmm. and, and and I think that this is a really good example of knowing, you know, knowing your own limitations and knowing what knowing what you like and what you don't like too, because I think that was part of it too for him, where. where he knew that he did not like, he didn't have the appetite for that, the, the politics behind what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. But he had the appetite for the politics prior, right? Right. But like the, because it's still politics, no matter how you look at it. I understand yeah. it, it was war, wartime versus like, let's try to chop it's this sad. up. Yeah. But I guess from a leadership perspective, and again, when we're talking about 
our audience, I would imagine, are going to be small business owners or or business owners in general, business leaders, whether they're ownership or not, it's kind of some sort of leader. So I, I think I think there has to come a time where you have to decide whether or not you it's basically about self-reflection, right? Mm-hmm. You have to look inward and say, am I capable of reinventing myself? Am I capable or or is the company capable or is the, the whatever you're a leader of capable of still understanding my fundamentals, right? Mm-hmm. Like the fundamentals I'm trying to instill on these. The military is a great example of this because what was fundamental 25, 35, 45 years ago is not today. Yeah. Like my, I, I told you earlier on this podcast, my dad spent 23 years in the Air Force. He thinks right now there's a wussification to the military for one thing, because of one thing. And I'm just going to give you this. And you can take a time out in boot camp if it gets too tough for you. And my dad thinks that that is the most ridiculous thing he has ever heard of in his entire life. But, but this is not his military. Right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. So if you take a look at the, if you take a look at these 18 to 22 year old kids that are going into the military today, what they grew up with and how the parenting style that they grew up with, it doesn't surprise me that no, we no. have boot camp that is supposed to be this treacherous, just grueling thing that is supposed to test you physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And if you can't take that test, you're out, right? Yep, now correct. all of a sudden we go, okay, but if you need five minutes, go ahead and take five minutes. Yeah, you need five minutes on the side. Right? <laughs> so so I guess I guess that's kind of what I'm talking about, right? Whereas the military took and uh, basically took an account and said, mm-hmm. We need if we want to be good leadership to this next generation, we have to main we have to do this a little differently. Mm-hmm. So if they're capable of it, I think any of us are capable of it. Right? Yeah. So I think that to your point is how do we go for how do we continue on? How do we do that? Number one, I think that as a human being, you have to know and understand one thing and one the most primary thing to our to our being, which is you are going to continuously learn until the day you die. You are going to have lessons to learn, things to learn. You're going to have to learn. In order to teach, you need to learn. So if you are willing to continually educate yourself, continually better yourself, and constantly take that retrospective attitude with yourself, then you have a better chance of going on and moving forward without having to leave your job and reinvent yourself somewhere else, Mm -hmm. right? Because that's Mm -hmm. a lot of, I mean, I saw that when I was coming up. I saw a lot of that where, Somebody would come in as a heavy hand, they'd do their thing and then move on, right? Mm-hmm. Because their their way of doing things would only take them so far. And then they had to go to a different company in order to get that going get again. That. But yeah. that was who they were as a person. I think that kind of mentality is gone. Yeah. I don't think we I don't think we have that luxury anymore of getting that 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 quick fix, that fixer, that person that comes in and writes the ship and then leaves and lets somebody else manage the ship. I think we all need to have all of those attributes together now where you can write the ship. You, you can walk in there and use your skill set to write the ship and stay to manage the ship because you are always going to learn and continue to learn and continue to better yourself. But I think that's the only way because otherwise you're going to sink with the ship (laughs) 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 or you're going to be like Lawrence wasn't, you're going to find your limitation and move on. Right. Like, yeah. I guess if you know and understand that about yourself, that could be okay. I, I, I personally don't think so, but that's just my an opinion, not fact. But yeah. I think that if you could find that next 
company that'll take you for that two to three years of writing the ship and then move on to the next, I guess, go for it. But you need to know what that timeline is. Like you need to know and understand what your own limitations are yep. before you can, before you can make that jump. Before you can make that jump. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. I, you know, that is a perspective that I've taken um, in my life. Um, if I'm on a project, it's open-ended. Like if it's my project and I own it, rest of my life, I don't know, whatever, <laughs> like this podcast, rest of my life, whatever. There's, I'm never going to run out of books. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I guess no guest. And I love having guests on, on like Tom. I do um, co-host, no co-host doesn't matter. I'm, I, I'm never going to run out of books and I'm, cause I'm passionate about it. Right. I'm committed. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm in, um, I know what it will take I, for me. That's an open-ended commitment, but if it's a commitment where I have to partner with somebody else in order to make that commitment, and I'm not talking about a marriage or children. I'm not talking about an intimate commitment. I'm talking about a business level, professional level commitment. For sure, I will put a time frame on that. And I will be honest with the other party and tell them what the time frame is because there's absolutely no way to do that and to not tell them, right? Um, it can't be a surprise, right? And by the way, I've worked with I've worked with partners, I've worked with businesses, I've I've, you know, I've worked a jobby job, a real whatever job. <laughs> and I've been upfront with those. I said, listen. I don't see myself lasting more than name the number of amount of time here. And on this day at this time, I'll be moving on. And I've had people laugh at me. I've had people not believe me. I've had people not take me seriously. Occasionally, once in a while, I'll have somebody who'll say, thank you for letting me know that. Now we can move forward. Yeah, yeah. But people are, I think organizations in that bureaucratic space are kind of locked into this idea. They're still locked in this idea of permanency, lifetime commitment. And everybody else who's sort of floating around with the free flowing movement of labor and money kind of understands at an individual level that I got to put, I got to move on. Now, where people are missing both of those, I think both of those uh, those connections is in that transparency piece. I think that's what's missing. And if more employees said that, I think organizations would shift around. And, I, and I, it can't be unstated. It has to be has to be out loud. Yeah. Well, cool. Well. We gotta let Tom go. Tom's gotta perambulate. That means walk over to his next meeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's my walking stick right here. <laughs> it's his walking stick. <laughs> he's gonna take his walking stick and he's gonna perambulate to his next meeting. Is there anything you'd like to promote on the podcast today? Any places where people can connect with you? And I want to thank you for coming on the leadership lessons from the great books and talking about Lawrence of Arabia and talking about leadership. Um, any place where people can connect with you? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm on all the social media. No, I'm not. I'm really Facebook and LinkedIn. That's it. So Facebook and LinkedIn, if they want to look me up, you know, Tom Libby is easy enough to find me. Um, if you, uh, the, the company I work for is called Zipper Agent. Uh, we're, a, we're a CRM and communication platform. However, we are specifically designed for the real estate market. So unfortunately, small businesses, if, you know, it's not really for you. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, but if you do have questions about it, I'd be happy to, happy to answer them if there's any kind of anything we could do to help. Um, we are trying to adopt it to small businesses, but it's not. It's going to be quite a while out there. Plus, there's a lot of really good CRMs out there for small businesses already. So I wouldn't want to, you know, deter people from what they are, what works for them. Anyway, but yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to make connections. People, if people are looking for, again, I, I was a consultant for a long time. If somebody ever wanted to just run ideas by me or bounce an idea off me, I'm happy to do that. I love talking to people, as as you can tell. <laughs> so um, I'd be, I, I always take the time. That's one thing about me that people probably. Uh, like to know is I almost always take the time. If somebody connects with me on LinkedIn and then they ask me to meet with them for a few minutes, I um, 
almost always say yes. So um, I'll be happy to talk with anybody if they have any questions. Awesome. We will have links to Tom's Facebook and LinkedIn and also to Tom's company uh, in the show notes in the area below the podcast player and, of course, below the video of this podcast on YouTube. Once again, I want to thank Tom for coming by, talking about Lords of Arabia on the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast. And with that, we're out. Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to podcasts on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and even Spotify. And please leave a five-star review if you like the show. We need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way to make sure that this show gets into the ears of the leaders who need to hear it. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started on the leadership path, HSCT Publishing's products and services can help your team do that. Check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We also have a video-based subscription service, that's software as a service, that can help your team become better at the individual level. 60 modules on over 100 hours of video and written content for you at leadingkeys.com. That's leadingkeys.com. We've also got books that will help you and your team grow. Pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss, and subscribe to the Little Red Podcast I launched earlier this year with the same name as that Little Red Book. My most recent book is 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, co-written with contributions from Bradley Madigan. This is the book for right now that was written for leaders right now. Pick up a copy by heading over to 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. That's 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. You pay for shipping, and you'll get a copy of my second book as well. Finally, you can get all these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place online you order books. Finally, HSCT Publishing is on YouTube. Like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing and hit the subscribe button. You'll get our weekly video updates, which is the video version of this podcast. And, of course, you're going to want to subscribe to my other podcast. That's right, I do do more than one. The Hayson Sorrells Presents Audio Experience, where I talk more casually with a broader range of people about all matters that matter in the world today, from arts all the way to analytics. All right, that's it for me.